Who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer and why is he still important? How can we think and make decisions ethically? And what was Bonhoeffer's unique contribution to this? Why does our character matter as much as our obedience? How can we do the right thing when we don't have a template? And how does trust in God's mercy free us from the paralyzing fear of making the wrong decision? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Moberly. Jenny is a tutor at Cranmer Hall and teaches ethics and Christian spirituality. And our question today is, what might Dietrich Bonhoeffer have to contribute to ethical decision making today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Jenny Mobley, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Jenny, tell us a little bit about your journey. You're now a tutor in spirituality and ethics at Cranmer Hall, but tell us about the role you had before you were ordained and how your ordained ministry has shaped up to the present time. My ordained ministry started with my curacy at Belmont in the Diocese of Durham. And while I was doing my curacy, I did my PhD. Following my curacy, I was the chaplain part-time at St. Mary's College, part of Durham University, and I was still tutor. I'd just finished my PhD when I got a, a phone call asking me, could I help out with some tutoring at Cranmer Hall? And lo and behold, every year, somehow there seemed to be more for me to do until I was teaching and, you know, just part of the furniture by now. Jenny, I know one of the things that you've found yourself exploring, and this goes back to your PhD study, was the ethics of the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Tell us, first of all, about Bonhoeffer, introduce him to us for those who are not aware of him, and and then tell us a little bit about what attracted you to, to looking at his ethics in particular. Bonhoeffer is one of the most compelling figures, I think, of the 20th century, full stop, never mind Christian, theologian, whatever. So amazingly, my kids learned about him in their religious studies education at school. And one of the noted commentators on Bonifer, Stephen Plant, refers to his celebrity status, which I think is actually right. There is a sense in which people who've not heard of any other theologian by name probably have heard of him, precisely because as a Christian minister in the Lutheran Church and as a theologian, he was someone who was willing to work against the Nazi regime to the extent of participating in a conspiracy group which was seeking to assassinate Hitler and take control of the German government so as to bring an end to World War II. So that's a a very potted history about Bonhoeffer. How did I get involved in looking at his ethics? This is a slightly longer one. 
So my dad trained for ministry in the Methodist Church in the United States in the 1950s. And where he was training, Drew Seminary, somewhere in New Jersey, don't ask me where, one of the members of staff was Franz Hildebrandt, who was one of Bonifer's closest friends. So my dad in the 1950s was hearing about Bonifer from this very close friend of his. And my dad was buying the books as soon as he could, hot off the press, as they were being translated into English. So I grew up with Bonifer books on the bookshelves. And as a teenager, when I came to faith, one of the first theology books I read, maybe the first theology book, was Bonifer's Discipleship. And so Bonifer has been a part of my Christian formation from the very beginning, really. When my parents were retiring, my mother insisted that my dad downsize with his books, and I got all of the Bonifer. So at this stage, I was singing in Vienna, and when I was at home with free time, I was reading Bonifer, and amongst those things was his ethics. And whilst I was reading his ethics, I knew that I didn't get it. There were bits that just didn't compute. But I had nothing to do with that. You know, I mean, I had nowhere to go to ask the questions. I didn't, I'm not even sure I would have known what questions to ask. But there it sat in the back of my head. And then I was training for ordination and we had a module on ethics. And... For whatever reason, I chose to do the essay title that was involved with virtue ethics. And so I was reading Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, as you do. And while I was reading McIntyre, I kept having quotes of Bonifer pop into my head. And I could not for the life of me think of any reason that there ought to be any relationship whatsoever between Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thought and virtue ethics. This did not make sense. A Lutheran theologian, early, middle 20th century, didn't do virtue ethics. That's just not a thing. But the more I read of McIntyre, the more persuaded I was that something was going on here. So I went to the shelf and got out my dad's copy of the ethics and two astonishing things happened. One was that I could find the quotes that I was remembering and two, I was remembering them properly. And I really did see something virtue ethical going on here. What didn't make sense to me when I was reading the ethics in Vienna suddenly, in the light of McIntyre, made sense. Now, that definitely was not something I could do anything with in, what was it, a 2,500-word essay for ethics. But I was left with this question. Why on earth should Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran, be doing something like virtue ethics? What was going on there? And that was the start of my PhD. Jenny, you've spoken about this theme of virtue ethics. Mm. Just 
introduce us to those of us for whom that's a new concept. Just kind of tell us what you mean by the general idea of virtue ethics and kind of put that on the landscape about the general other kind of key ideas about ethics, which is a Christian uh, uh, way of making decisions, I guess, and, and, and framing holy living. Just give us a bit of an introduction to that term and put it in its context. Yeah, so I think there are three broad families of how we think ethically. One is based on things like rules and obligations and laws, and Christians very often turn to that. You know, what does scripture say? Or our society in many ways, has adopted things like the Ten Commandments precisely from the Judeo-Christian heritage that we have. Those ways of thinking get called deontology, and it is the prime way you would expect a Lutheran in the early 20th century to be doing ethics. That would be the normal way that Bonifer should have been doing ethics. In England, or Britain and in America, probably all of the English-speaking countries, the most common way of thinking about ethics actually has to do with outcomes. And so very often in our society, we think the right thing to do is the thing that will produce the best outcomes. So we're talking about maximizing human happiness. We're talking about avoiding pain avoiding suffering if we can do that. And a lot of the reform agenda in the 19th century in this country comes out of that kind of thinking. So we call that consequentialism or utilitarianism, and great things have been done in that mode. But the third big family of how we go about thinking about ethics, we call virtue ethics, and it has to do with who we should be. And for Christians, this is who we are called, who we are created, who the Holy Spirit is making us to be. And if we think in terms of virtue ethics, we might talk about character, we might talk about what motivates us. We might talk about our intentions, what we are hoping in our action to be doing. It's a holistic look, not only at our actions, but who we are and who we become over time. So virtue ethics, in fact, includes something of the rules and obligations of deontology it also includes a consideration of outcomes, as we have in consequentialism, utilitarianism. But it has that bigger overarching question of who we are to be. And it's those bigger questions that focus on the person and who we are to become that I think you can find in Bonifer in a way that as I say, for a, a man of his time and his context is just surprising and fascinating. So Bonhoeffer is this extraordinary man in the sense that he's a pastor, he's a theologian, he's both thoroughly rooted in that German Lutheran tradition, but also hugely well connected with America where he lived and London, mm -hmm. which he visited. 
He was a leader of a seminary and also, as you say, politically engaged in the Nazi period and the Second World War. So he's this extraordinary figure that may explain a little bit about why he broke the mould in so many ways. Just give us a sense of where's he coming from in terms of virtue ethics? And in particular, why is virtue ethics the place where he lands as a framework for decision making? I should say, I don't necessarily want to claim that that's where he lands, because I think that he's actually got a fusion going on between what we call Bartian divine command ethics and virtue ethics. So I should say something about Bartian divine command ethics now. Karl Barth's way of thinking ethically is based on the living God has commands that come to us afresh, daily. We can't presume today that we know what God will command based on what he has commanded yesterday or previously in our lives or whatever. And so for Karl Barth, the question is discerning and doing this will of God, which we can't presume to know in advance. And Bonhoeffer uses a lot of Barth's language when he's doing his ethics. And it seems to me that you get this really fascinating combination of a virtue ethical focus on the agent, development, growth over time, who we are to be, character, all of that going on. And at the same time, you get the language from Bart of God's command coming to us afresh. And so I think you get in Bonifer this incredible mixture of the focus on being who we are, who we are to become, and simultaneously the focus on acting and what we are to do. So the caricatures that you get from Bart or of Bart and his thought or of virtue ethics won't hold with Bonifer because the failings or the weaknesses in each of those modes of thinking about ethics aren't present in the same way in Bonifer because of that fusion. Let's look at those two in turn, shall we, Jenny? First mm. of all, the being, the character. What are the key ways in which Bonhoeffer says that development and growth of character might take place? How might that virtue grow, in other words, in Bonhoeffer's world? So you can trace a development in Bonifer's thinking over time. So at the time that he was writing Discipleship, he's happy to use the language of imitating Christ. You know, he draws on Thomas Akempis, the imitation of Christ, which in German gets called the Discipleship of Christ. So even the title, in a certain sense, harks back to Thomas Akempis. And he's very upfront in that book about only the believer is obedient and only the obedient person believes. So he's very demanding in terms of what the responsibility is on the human being, the Christian, in that following of Christ. When he's writing his ethics, He's more 
wary about that language of imitation and he suddenly starts talking it's a beautiful picture he talks about how christ wins form within the believer suddenly how we become more christ-like is down to the agency of christ even though we still have to participate and he you know clarifies that as well it's not one or the other ever in Bonifer. God's agency and human agency aren't in competition with one another in his thought. So in one place in the ethics, he says that it turns out that the thing that we think was most obviously our doing turns out to be an act of God. So imitation early in discipleship, Christ winning form in us, in the ethics, Later on in the letters and papers from prison that got smuggled out to his good friend Eberhard Bethke, one of the things that he wrote in prison was an essay called What Does It Mean to Tell the Truth? And in that essay, he's actually really concerned with the role of education. So it's not just that we follow Christ and we imitate Christ. It's not just that Christ wins form in us. He talks about the role of parents and teachers in helping us to know, to learn what is right. So you get all of those things going on in Bonifat. And if you have that picture of that evolving thought about what it means to grow in virtue, moving on from imitating Christ through Christ winning form in us and, and then mm. the education what are the ways in which Bonhoeffer expresses God's command coming to us afresh, that sort of acting, that sort of doing? And I guess in particular, but what role do the scriptures have in hearing that and leading us to action and obedience? Clearly, scripture is hugely formative for Bonhoeffer. So he describes his own real coming to faith in terms of when he discovered scripture. He says he'd been a pastor, he'd preached, he'd done this and that, but he only came to Christ as he discovered scripture. And although he doesn't date that, um, this is in a, a letter that he wrote, I think in 1936, and he doesn't date that, but it seems to me fairly obvious that when that happens was when he was living in New York in 3031, studying at Union Seminary, where good friends of his included a French pacifist, Jean Lesser, and some others. But Jean Lesser insisted that the Sermon on the Mount had to be taken seriously. This was not for Lasserre, something that as Lutherans in Boniface's context claimed was just there to show us that we are incapable as human beings of fulfilling God's commands. So Lasserre essentially throws down the gauntlet. Are you going to be serious in following Christ or not? And clearly that sticks. And it starts a huge change in him, in his life, and in his thought as a theologian. So when he's 
writing discipleship, interpreting the Sermon on the Mount as actually ethically binding for us was central to his project. And so you see from that time forward that Bonifer doesn't want to make claims that he does not back up with scripture. So I think truth told, he's not a biblical theologian in one sense. So people who are, are serious biblical scholars will often say how he handles scripture is not the way that a biblical scholar handles scripture. No, he is more like a systematician and he is always asking philosophical thoughts. He is always treating scripture as a systematician rather than a biblical scholar, but scripture is still at the heart of how he thinks, whether in terms of ethics or any other of his theology. You've given us this picture about this extraordinary synthesis that Bonhoeffer achieved between the importance of the character, which is the place of mm. virtue ethics, and the importance of the command, the the obedience that is the deontology approach in this extraordinary fusion. I wonder if you could say how you feel that Bonhoeffer's own context fed into that approach and perhaps give some examples about how that fleshed out in his own life or as he engaged with some of the very difficult ethical choices that he had to make. One of the really interesting things is that people who write about Bonifer have long been aware that Bart played this huge role in his early formation. And in the ethics, you get Bartian language, especially from the second half of the writing period, so from, I think, 41, 42 forward. I'm going to exaggerate here. It feels like every other word is command or obedience or will of God. So the language looks incredibly Bartian. When you start taking it apart, though, he doesn't use the language in the same way that Bart does. Instead of the will of God being something that we need to discern, as in Bart, when Bonifer talks about the will of God, he has this cosmic vision that the will of God has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is done. This is not something that we've got to discern and then realize. But it is something that puts us into question. Is God's will fulfilled in Jesus Christ realized in me? Am I reconciled to God? So even when he is at his most Bartian in the ethics, he's actually doing a different thing. He's putting us into question whether we receive a share, he says, of that fulfilled will of God. So we're not asking necessarily what action we should take when we think of the will of God. We are allowing ourselves to be called into question, which is a really interesting dynamic. But what did that look like in his own life? 
Bonifer talks, and this is again a bit like virtue ethics, he talks about the need to use all of our human faculties in knowing how we are then to live. So he says, you know, we need to think about the consequences. We need to bring into consideration the whole matrix of relationships. I cannot act in ways that would be inappropriate, speaking as myself, as a mother. You know, it matters that we have relationships in terms of what we do. And he has those in mind. So very interesting if you want to think about Bart and Bonifer. Bart seems always simply to know what he must do. He seems not to spend any time thinking about it. When it came down to the Aryan clause, he was a professor in one of the German universities. No, I will not sign up to this. And he doesn't have a job. He simply resigns and goes back to Switzerland and finds a job. You know, there is just this immediate thing. And that's what he talks about, too, when he writes about ethics. Bonifer clearly wrestles with similar decisions. He has to work it out. And the working out is hard. So in the ethics, he talks about sometimes needing to act on our most personal responsibility, not knowing whether we are doing the right thing or not, but trusting in God's mercy. So he, he wants to insist in some of the gray areas where he was having to act, that it would be wrong to try to come up with a justification. So Bart says, of course, Bonifer and the conspirators knew Thomas Aquinas' teaching that it is justifiable as a Christian to assassinate a tyrant if there is no other way of securing peace and justice for people. Bart says that they knew this teaching, but they clearly didn't this is Bart. They clearly didn't have a command from God to assassinate Hitler. Otherwise, someone would have done it, even if it had meant killing themselves in the process. That just sharp clarity. You know God's commandment. Honifer doesn't have that. He's got to work at it. And he's unwilling to set up that Thomistic kind of, yes, tyrannicide is okay, and therefore I've got my justification. Instead, he says, no, sometimes you just have to act on your most personal responsibility, not knowing whether this is the right thing, but trusting in God's mercy. The ethical framework you've described and you've drawn sharply the distinction between that divine command approach by Bart and a slightly more intuitive, as you describe it, a wrestling approach from Bonhoeffer, trusting in God's mercy, acting from your sense of most personal responsibility. We're in a world today, Jenny, where there, and we're recording this at a time of the coronavirus pandemic, <clears throat> where there are a whole range of very sharp ethical questions that are facing policymakers, 
leaders in all dimensions, priests and ministers. What are the insights that we might take away from Bonhoeffer that might be relevant in this season? It seems to me that, as they keep saying to us, we live in unprecedented times. Our leaders, whether they are our political leaders or our church leaders, we ourselves don't actually have a template to follow. We live in a situation where we honestly do not know what the right thing to do is. And we may have to make decisions and we may have to act without that assurance that we are doing the right thing because we don't know what the outcomes will be from our decisions and our actions. We certainly don't have any rules to guide us in these times. What we do have, though, is the assurance that God is with us in it and that we are not the first Christians to have to make decisions not knowing what the right thing is. You know, I thank God that I don't have to decide whether to assassinate someone or not or take part in a plot where people are going to try to do that. But nonetheless, we are all of us having to make decisions where we don't know, where we have to be willing to act on the best understanding that we have, but commend that, commend ourselves to God and trust in his mercy. And in many ways, it seems to me that that is a more faithful, faith-filled way of living than when we have it all neatly planned out. And we know that we're doing the right thing because we have the chapter and verse to tell us that this is it. In such a case, we have to act trusting in God rather than trusting in ourselves. And if we're going to do that, Jenny, and probably as we finish, it would be helpful to hear what this feels like for you as well as for us. What are the things that contribute to that faith-filled approach that we might take forward as people listening to this podcast so that we are, as you say, not guaranteed to take the right decisions, but perhaps live in a faith-filled way? It seems to me that one of the things that paralyzes us far too often is the fear that we're going to get it wrong. And in such a way of understanding and thinking and deciding and acting, that <laughs> love casts out fear, that trusting God can actually take away that paralysis. I don't have to get it right. And yes, I may decide next year that I've got it wrong, or my children may decide in 20 years that I've got it wrong, or, you know, whoever judges us afterwards may realize. But we have got to take decisions and actions at a point in history where we only have the information that we have. I often think you know, the judgments that we make of previous generations are so unfair because we judge them very often in the light of what we now know and they could not possibly have known at the time. 
but Bonifer demands that we actually take seriously this historical context. I only have the information that I have now. I cannot be responsible for information that I don't have, but I can trust in God. That's an inspiring and thought-provoking place to end. Jenny Moberly, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>